Well, good morning, Gateway, or wherever you're listening to this online. We're starting a brand new series this week called How Not to Read the Bible. And uh, you might think, why are we sort of delving into this topic? Well, I do think there is a problem when it comes to reading the Bible. And uh, I want to introduce this with a clip from the series West Wing, which shows my age. Uh, but in this little clip, you've got two politicians, one who is the President of the United States and another politician, talking about why one of them no longer goes to church. I don't know how you plan to handle this religious thing in the campaign. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. I could find a way to let it slip. I think a candidate's religion or how often he goes to church is not relevant to choosing a president. You're going to say that on the way into church? Are you accusing me of politicizing church going? You've had an awful lot of photo ops on the church steps. I went to mass every Sunday long before I went into politics. I did so. Why'd you stop? One Christmas, my wife gave me a very old edition of the King James Bible. 17th century. It was a real find for a book collector. It was, it was a thrill just to hold it. Then I read it. <laughs> you can't take it literally. Yeah, well, that's what my priest friends kept telling me. But the more I read it, the less I could believe it. I could not believe there was a God who said that the penalty for working on the Sabbath was death. I couldn't believe there was a God who said the penalty for adultery was death. I'm more of a New Testament man myself. I couldn't believe that there was a God who had no penalty for slavery. The Bible has no problem with slavery at all. Lincoln could have used a little help from the Bible. You think Lincoln was an atheist? I hope not. That would mean all his references to God were just purely political. He didn't make any until he started running for office. No. He certainly was without it. What about you? You gonna to try to save my soul? Sorry. Let's just say I struggled for a long time with that book. Finally, I just gave up the struggle. Okay, time for some honesty. Who has ever felt like the character Vinnick in that clip? It's okay to admit that you don't get all that's written in the Bible. It's okay to admit that there are paths that you would rather avoid. You know, some people say the Bible is easy to understand. It's the very word of God. The Bible says it and I believe it and that's that. But it's not easy. It's okay to admit that you don't understand it all. Some people say it's just an ancient document full of myths and stories relevant to the Hebrew people but of no relevance at all to modern Australians and, and you are ignorant to attach special worth to it. I would say that such comments show no understanding of the arc of humanity and the significance of the Bible in our history. But here's some good news. You can be a thinking, intelligent, rational, curious follower of Christ and 100% believe 
in the trustworthiness and inspiration of the Bible. But we need to learn how to read it and how not to read it. I'm going to be saying some stuff that you might think is controversial. If you're part of a life group, that is a great place to discuss this stuff, pull it apart. Disagree with me, please. But don't ever think that this book is not precious. It contains the words that bring life. But let's start by putting the Bible in the place it deserves. Now, Chris Webb, in his book, Fire of the Word, tells the story of visiting a Sikh house of worship when he was studying for the ministry. Now, Sikhism is an Indian religion that originated around 500 years ago, so it's really quite a young world religion. Now, this house of worship was located inside a very ordinary drab office building in London, but when he walked inside, it was awash with bright colour and the smell of Eastern spices. He was welcomed by the worshippers and taken into the main hall, which had dozens of people scattered around sitting cross-legged. And at the front of the room was a huge tasseled canopy of embroidered white silk with a luxurious gold fringe, and resting under that was a massive book. If it stood up, it would have been about a metre tall, and when it was opened up, it was about the width of a man's reach. And the open pages were filled with hand-painted illustrations and elegant script. Behind the book sat an immaculately dressed Sikh man, just waving a fan over the book. His Sikh hosts immediately removed their shoes and bowed respectfully in front of the book. This book was the Guru Granth Sahib written by 10 gurus who laid out the foundations of Sikh faith and practice. It was proclaimed by one of the gurus as the last and eternal guru and plays a central role in their worship. They treat this book almost like a living person, as if the past gurus live within it. They believe that although the book is not God, it does somehow contain the divine spirit, so much so that when a copy of this book is damaged beyond repair, it is not simply thrown away. They hold a funeral service for it. They cremate it and keep the ashes. Now, how do Christians feel about our holy book? We certainly believe it is no ordinary book, and that we are drawn into the presence of God when we read it. But the Bible is not God, and there is a danger of elevating the Bible beyond the place it should be. We can actually be in danger of worshipping the Bible. We are not called to be obedient to the Bible, but to God who speaks through the Bible. We are not Bible-centred people, we are Christ-centred people. Our lives are shaped by the Bible, but they're not lived for the Bible. 
We are not Bible-believing Christians. We are God-believing, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered Christians whose faith is formed and fortified by the Bible. Now, you might think this is just semantics, but when we elevate the Bible to a place it does not claim for itself, we are in danger of Biblicism. Now, that means to take every word of the Bible literally, to believe that it contains everything that is needed for righteous living, to believe it is totally infallible with no inconsistencies. And this actually was never the way that we were meant to read this precious book. And it has caused so much grief in the church over the years. Let let me give you an example from history. There are several verses in the Bible that talk about the sun moving across the sky and that God set the earth on its foundations and that it cannot be moved. So therefore, the church's teaching for many centuries was that the earth stood still and the sun moved around it. Now, when Galileo, who was a 16th century scientist, contradicted this idea, when he said that actually it's the sun that stays still and the earth goes around it, he was charged with heresy by the church. They had elevated every word of the Bible to such an exalted literal place that there was no room for discussion or interpretation or debate. The Bible says it, I believe it, full stop. I think think it would be good to learn to put the Bible in its right place. I thank God for this book, but it is not the foundation of my life. Jesus is. So let's look at today five ways not to read the Bible. Firstly, Don't read it as if it's a modern book. This is actually a library of ancient writings. The oldest one, they think about 10th century before Christ. That's a, you know, a thousand years before Christ. And the most recent, probably around 90 years AD, 90 AD. Does it speak to our lives now? Yes and yes, God is timeless. His wisdom is timeless. But this is an ancient book written by ancient people. It was written for us. Every person at every time in history. But it wasn't written to us. It was written to ancient societies that had very different contexts. Let me give you an example of this. In Deuteronomy, which is one of the early books in the Old Testament, you can read a law that says if a man rapes a woman, he must marry her. Now, in our context, we are horrified by that idea. But in that, con- in that society's context, It was about justice, because if a woman had lost her virginity, there is no way that she would ever be married by any other man, and she would end up being thrown out by her family and would be destitute. What this law was doing was 
ensuring that the rapist took responsibility and was accountable for his actions. By taking that woman into his home, he therefore had to care for her for the rest of his life. So what's the principle here? The principle is justice for the woman. You need a good study Bible or a good commentary in order to get the context because you cannot read this book just like a modern book. Secondly, don't read the Bible as a history textbook. There is history in the Bible, but the way ancient people wrote history is different from, from modern textbook writers. The Old Testament history books are more like stories based on real events. The writings involve some reshaping of the events in order to tell the story well. Now, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, all those four books are in the Old Testament, they both tell the story of Israel and its various kings and wars and victories and defeats, but many of the details just don't align. Now, why is that? Well, the two sets of writers were trying to answer different questions about Israel's past and were shaping the stories to help them to do that. Now, that shouldn't mess with your respect for the Bible. It was the way things were done in ancient times. What makes the Bible God's word isn't its uncanny historical accuracy, but the sacred experiences these stories point to beyond the words themselves. Watching these ancient pilgrims work through their faith models for us our own journeys of seeking to know God more deeply. Thirdly, don't read the Bible as a science textbook. Our level of scientific understanding is such a new kid on the block. Scientific method really only started a couple of hundred years ago. We cannot expect the biblical writers to have our understanding. Now, let me give you an example. I remember as a young person trying to figure out the accuracy of the Bible uh, reading the Genesis story of creation. Now, to start with, accuracy should never be the way that you judge the Bible. For generations since Darwin came out with his theory of evolution, there have been Christians who have had to find a synthesis of the biblical story and the scientific story. You know, how do we sort of correlate what we think we know about the age of the world with what the Bible says about it happening in six days? And they believe that if they couldn't find that synthesis, then the whole respect for the scripture would come crashing down. I read an article that tried to do just that, find this synthesis, to explain how the biblical account fitted perfectly with the scientific one. And I gave this article to my, my brother, who was a science major at uni, to give me an opinion. He gave it back to me with red marks all over it. Not correct. Where did they get this from? This has been thoroughly disproven. This logic doesn't make sense. It could have sent me into a spin, but actually it led me to somewhere deeper and more important. Did it ever occur to you that the Genesis story was not written by an eyewitness to the events? 
like, duh. <laughs> I think that's what I thought when I was a kid. In the long and bloody history of the Jewish people, they were conquered by the Babylonian Empire about 500 years before Jesus was born. And scholars believe that this is when many of the early stories of the Old Testament were written down, including Genesis, based on thousands of years of oral tradition, you know, stories passed down from, from father to son. Now, the Babylonians were a violent and vicious people. And surrounded by this culture, the Jews were taught the origin story of the Babylonian gods. And it went something like this. One of their big bad gods called Marduk fought with another goddess, Tiamat. He ripped her body apart and from these parts he made the heavens and the earth. Now, when a society is based on such a violent origin story, it makes it easier for the people to behave like that towards others. It's like, this is what our gods are like. This is how we should live. The Jewish exiles found themselves in this land surrounded by this soup. And from what they knew deeply in their spirits about their own history with God, they put together the Yahweh creation story. They edited together a poem. Yes, a poem, not a scientific explanation, in which the origin of mankind is not violence and destruction, but creativity, joy, overflowing love and generosity. I want you to listen for a moment to how it would have been heard by a people in exile to a violent culture that cared little for the weak. Here's some verses from the Hebrew origin story. First this, God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness and inky blackness, and God's spirit brooded like a bird over the watery abyss. And God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. God created human beings. He created them godlike reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female, and God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for everything that moves and breathes. And God looked over everything he had made. It was so good, so very, very good. There's some excerpts from the poetry of Genesis 1. And then we come along thousands of years later and try and treat it like an accurate scientific account of the beginnings of life. And why? Because of fear. Fear that the truth of the Bible would be destroyed by science. Now, the truth is that science only exists because of the Bible. When the early scientists read of a rational, loving God who set this world in motion, they set out to discover how he worked. 
and every new discovery is an insight into the mind of the Creator. The Bible has nothing to fear from science, but it is not a science textbook. Four, don't read it as a legal rule book. There are rules in the Bible, but most of them were given to a certain people at a certain time, and not all of them are applicable to us now. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about it being shameful for a woman to not have her head covered in worship. And some of our mothers and grandmothers grew up in an era when a woman would be seen dead at church without a hat because of these verses. But it's so easy to see this as a cultural thing. This was the dress that was expected of women in biblical times. When it comes to rules, we need to look to Christ, who turned the very idea of rules on its head. He taught that following God was not about rules like what we did or did not do. It was about a total change of heart and mind. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. To love our neighbour as ourself. And when we had that total change of heart and mind, then we would naturally walk in the way of love without the need for rules. Number five, last one. Don't read it as if it's not the most dangerous book in the world. It will challenge you. It will change you. It will guide you, it will disturb you, it will encourage you. God will speak to you through it. The God that we worship gave us this library for a purpose. It has the breath of God all over it. Don't take it for granted. Read it or listen to it every day. If you are more confused than ever, just walk away with this. The bottom line of the Bible, it's good enough for kids, good enough for me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's not a bad bottom line. More to come next week. This is a big topic. We've just started to open it up. We'll see you next week.